Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Psalms of Refuge, with a message titled, Do Not Forget the Afflicted. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 10 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Psalm 10 is the only psalm in our present study that doesn't bear the title of a psalm of David. You know, in the first book of the Psalms, which goes from Psalm 1 to 41, there are only three of them, that's Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and Psalm 10, that don't have a note claiming David as its author. And since we started this study in Psalm 3, this is then the first psalm in which David is not the author. That's interesting because, at least so it seems to me, David is the one who probably arranged book one of the Psalms. And so, if that's so, I would then assume that David would have known the author of this psalm. David must have come to the conclusion that the author of this psalm was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, I think it most likely that the author was one of the prophets who prophesied to David on occasion. Now, it does no good at all to make guesses as to who the author was, but the placement of Psalm 10 is of some interest. If you followed me through this study, you may have noticed that there are numerous prayers of lament. Psalm 3 began with the words, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. And then when we got to Psalm 9, we had a psalm, which is an explosion of thanksgiving that so many of David's enemies have stumbled and fallen. God has heard David's prayer and he's intervened on his behalf. But in case you missed it, the psalms of lament are not psalms that we pray whenever we want to you know, gain the upper hand against a competitor, when we wish to complain our side of a dispute. And that's where Psalm 10 comes in. The unknown psalmist gives us a picture of the wicked. It was Augustine who thought that the person being described here was the Antichrist. Now, that's a stretch. See, the Old Testament saints didn't know anything about the Antichrist. I think it would be better to say that the coming Antichrist will embody many of the descriptors found in this psalm. But Psalm 10, I think, is an antidote for the naive, who believe that extreme wickedness is a matter of myth and legend only. Rather, this is a description of what wickedness looks like. And it's also a description of what it feels like to be under the oppression of the wicked. So with that in mind, let's begin by listening to the plaintive cry that opens this psalm. And here I'm reading Psalm 10, verses 1 and 2. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. You know, as we read these words, and if you've been following me through this short series on the early psalms, you'll begin to recognize the feeling behind those words. You know, Psalm 4 began, Answer me when I call, O God. And Psalm 5 begins, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Psalm 6, verse 2, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am anguishing. You know, for those of us who have spent time in the Psalms, those words are so familiar. The wicked seem to be vanquishing everyone around them. And the righteous cry out to God. And then, at least for a season, perhaps even a very long season, it appears as if God does not answer. And so our psalmist wants to know, God, are you just standing far away and letting it all happen without even as much as taking action? It seems you've hidden yourself from my cry. See, have you ever wondered deep down whether God cares about your case? 
And when you wonder whether heaven has closed its ears, do you also wonder if you're the only one who's ever asked the question? You've prayed and prayed, just like this psalmist, that the wicked would be caught in their own lies, their own schemes, their own slanders, but nothing happens. Is God listening? Now, if you felt that way, or perhaps even you know, you're feeling that way right now, please understand. These feelings are not unique to you. Now then, from verse 3 all the way down to verse 11, what we then have is a lengthy description of the wicked. And before I read, you might ask, I mean, what's this here for? Why does this description go on and on? Well, I think as we study this, we're going to understand why it's here. So hang in there as this unnosed psalmist gives us a full description of the wicked man. Now, since the description is long, I've chosen to break it into three sections. The first section is from verses 3 to 6, and that's a description of the wicked man's character. And the second section, from verses 7 to 10, is a description of how the wicked man treats others. And then the last section, well, I guess it's really not a section at all because it's just one verse, but it's a summary statement of the wicked man's theology. So does it surprise you that the wicked man has a theology? We all have a theology. You know, in our hearts, we all conceive God to be like something. And it turns out that the wicked man has done some thinking about God and that he's reached a conclusion. But let's start at the beginning. We will start with a description of the wicked man, and that's in Psalm 10, 3 to 6. For the wicked man boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. You know, it should be clear to us as we're reading this section that the wicked is not just, you know, one man out there. He actually represents a class or a a group of men and women. Look, we're all sinners, but wicked men and women have some character qualities that mark them as distinct. So let's see if we can get inside of his head. First, would you notice that he boasts of the desires of his soul? Now, you might wonder about that. The NIV says that he boasts of the cravings of his heart. Now, that's more of a paraphrase, but it, it does get at what's going on. He has things he wants and things that are the very center of who he is, and he doesn't hide it, and he's going after certain things. You know, he lets people know that whatever he wants, he is going to get. He wants to let people know that he always gets what he wants, and in time, he demonstrates that's true. You know, in this way, he wants to be known as a man who has power. That's why the next line about the one greedy for gain, that line is really a repeat of the first line that he boasts about the power he has to get what he wants. The second thing we learn about him is that he curses God. There's a passage in the book of James that describes the opposite. James 4 verse 2 says that many times we do not have because we don't ask God. See, that's a great teaching. God wants us to ask him to give us what we need for life and godliness. He may refrain from giving us what we need because he wants to teach us to humble ourselves and bend the knee and ask him for grace and mercy, and then he gives. And we have learned our lesson. God is the source of every good gift, but the wicked is exactly the opposite. He boasts that he doesn't need God to get what he wants, and he's proven that. 
Now, we might wonder about the contradiction that on one hand, he curses God and despises God. And then if you go to verse four, we hear him saying, there is no God. Well, if there's no God, why is he cursing God? And so one possibility here is that he's just the atheist who hates God. There are some atheists that are exactly like that. You know, the famous atheist line that if he ever meets God, he's going to shake a cancerous bone in his face and demand why. It's not just arrogance. It's unintelligible. I mean, why this anger against the God who in his mind doesn't exist? And so it may well be that this wicked man is simply inconsistent, but perhaps not. You know, in the first part of verse 4, we read, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And it may be that when the wicked man says there is no God, he simply means there is no God who can help me get what I want. It's all up to me. God plays no factor in whether I get or I don't get. I think that's the attitude of the wicked. God is there. I don't need him. Now, a third attitude in the wicked is found in verse 6. He says, I shall not be moved. And then through all generations, which of course is an exaggeration, but nevertheless, he says, I shall not meet adversity. I'm not like the suckers who are victims. I make my own luck. God helps those who help themselves, and I've been helping myself. And that's the wicked. Proud that they have power to get what they want out of life. They don't need God for that. Now, from that attitude then comes actions, and that's where we come to Psalm 10, 7 to 10. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sets in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. See, what we believe about ourselves in our hearts has consequences. If we view ourselves from the perspective of arrogance, we're going to hurt and destroy and ruin and injure and damage others. There'll be wreckage all around us. Did you know that? The number one issue in all relationship is first in our hearts, how we conceive ourselves. The wicked man is not a humble man. The days we have are precious, and how we use our days matter. Dr. John helps us to consider how we spend our time in ways that matter for eternity in his series, The Time of Your Life. Why is time so important? Well, it's a scarce commodity. It's uncertain how many days we have. Time can never be recovered, and our use of time can introduce either light or darkness. Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus is so true for us today. We should be a church longing to live as those who are wise, making the very best use of our time. This is a high calling, but a worthy calling. This month, request Dr. Neufeld's series, The Time of Your Life, on CD as our free gift to you. And to support Bible teaching with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. The description of what the wicked does is an alarming one indeed. 
First, verse 7 tells us that there are three things that characterize all his actions. The first is cursing. Now, I don't think that the cursing being spoken of here is that he simply uses foul language. Yeah, and that is a sin. But I think what's intended here is that the wicked man curses others. I mean, most likely that means that he threatens them or he intimidates them. That's his first line of offense. If he can get you to cower, he's already in the lead. Second, verse 7 tells us that he uses deceit. That is, he has a scheme in his mind. What he's up to is not always apparent. He's most likely working behind the backs of his intended victims so that when he strikes, they won't know what hit them. And then third, he uses oppression. This now is when he goes after someone, no holes are barred. He doesn't listen to their cries for mercy. It doesn't affect him. He's there to win and to get his way. See, what follows in the rest of the paragraph is a description of some of the actual means he uses. He's described as sitting in a hiding place so that he can ambush when all the advantage is on his side. He's cleverly arranged matters so that when the fight comes, he's going to win. And so he considers his victims to be helpless. They're no match for his wit. He's like a lion using stealth. Every step is made with care. Every bush that can provide cover is noticed. The wind direction is taken into account so that the victim has no smell or sense of his presence. And when the lion pounces, it's too late for the victim to react. You know, there are some who have difficulty of conceiving of people who are such merciless predators. But such predators do exist. We all do well to realize it. And they're not always simply criminals. That is to say, they're not always among bank robbers and murderers. Sometimes they're in business, and sometimes they're among the professions, and sometimes they're even found in churches. How can you tell them? Well, the answer from this psalm is that you can tell them by counting up their victims. When Paul gave his charge to Timothy to select elders in the church of Ephesus, he spoke of choosing men who were well thought of by outsiders and who had established a good reputation over the years. See, sometimes it's hard for local churches to ask hard questions. I know many churches who don't have a thorough vetting process. Sometimes it's because they're just too embarrassed to ask. Deep inside, we think that we really should trust each other, believe the best about each other, love each other, and of course, We should think the best about each other, but we must also listen seriously when someone who may well be a victim, and then they come forward. In our day, when so many leaders are accused of either, you know, abuse or sexual misconduct, we are to ask hard questions and not quickly come to conclusions, but to listen, to hear, to discern, to examine. That's because the Bible has told us that wicked people do exist and they are best known by the victims they've left in their wake. They may appear to be one thing, but their victims testify they are another. Now then, when summing up this description of the wicked, our psalmist has one more thing to say. You may have noticed it in verse 11. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Do you remember that I said the wicked man has a theology? He does. The wicked man does not believe in judgment day. Indeed, he may be a deist. I mean, the old deists believed that God created the world and wound it up like one of those old watches that were controlled by a spring. And now that the watch, or in this case, the world is running, the watchmaker's gone away and letting things simply take their own course. We're on our own now. See, it's important for us when reading Psalm 10 to compare it to Psalm 9. 
See, some have argued that, you know, the two of them are one psalm, but that's incorrect. I think Psalm 10 is included after Psalm 9 because the writer of Psalm 10 was familiar with Psalm 9. In Psalm 9, the enemy is clearly the foreign nations that surround Israel and were constantly threatening her borders. And so in Psalm 9, the enemy is on the outside. But in Psalm 10, we are shown an enemy that's on the inside, and it's for that reason. And I said, sometimes it does happen that a wicked man is found even in church, and he has and continues to do great harm to many. Jesus spoke about that as recorded in Matthew 13 when he told the parable of the wheat and the tares. The enemy, the devil, has come, and he's planted weeds among the wheat in order to disrupt the harvest. Sometimes the devil plants false brothers and sisters among the Christian community where their misdeeds harm so many and damage the witness of Christ. Now then, having said that, let's continue to read Psalm 10, 12 to 15, which is a cry to the Lord for his intervention. If this matter exists among us, surely we need God to help us. And so our passage says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. It is often the case that evil men only act after they have consolidated so much power that those who might have wanted to stop them are now unable to do so. The wicked have become that powerful. And so the only strategy left is to pray. The line, arise, O Lord, is a prayer for God to intervene. Don't let the natural course of events simply take their course. Jesus talked about this when he told the parable of the unrighteous judge. In this story, a widow who's the victim of evil, keeps coming to an unrighteous judge for help. She wants justice. Now, the judge doesn't care. However, the the widow won't stop. She persists. And the judge finally gives her justice, not because he cares, but because the woman simply won't stop bothering him. And finally, he gives her what she wants just to get rid of her. Now, we're not to think that God is like that. He's not. However, If even this woman found justice, how much more when you pray and don't give up will you also find justice? That's a promise Jesus made. And this psalmist is behaving just like Jesus described. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Don't forget me. And with that comes the lament. The wicked has been saying that that God doesn't care. But the psalmist knows that God does care. And perhaps for us who suffer at the hands of the wicked, perhaps this should be the beginning of our cry. We need to say to ourselves, remind ourselves, God cares. You know, for us New Testament believers, this is the very heart of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave us his son. God's not aloof from the cry of his people. God's deeply involved in our lives. Remind yourself of that. And when you pray, cry out to God. The psalmist says, you do see. And then he goes on to say that he knows that God is the father of the fatherless. He defends his own. And so the prayer that that comes to the end of this section, that God would break the arm of the wicked and take it into account, you know, for some of us, it seems vindictive. Christians have been taught to pray, to forgive our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us. But please remember this is poetic language. The arm to be broken is the arm of power that continues to leave more victims in its wake. 
Another way of saying it is to say, O Lord, take away his ability to continue to persecute and destroy the lives of others. And that's a godly prayer for in praying in that fashion, we're not only asking God to deliver us, but also to deliver others who will be harmed by the wicked. And with that, we come to the end of the psalm in a wonderful way. After describing so much evil, the psalmist now gives assurance to all God's people. Psalm 10, 16 to 18, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. It's a wonderful assurance. You know, it begins with a most powerful assertion. The Lord is king forever and ever. He is not in the past, nor will he in the future cease to be the king. He will continue to rule over all. He's never been an absentee ruler. The second wonderful affirmation is that all the nations perish from this land, but he is forever. They're not. And then the third affirmation that relates directly to the issue of the wicked. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, a God who stoops down and elevates the helpless. I know, says the psalmist, that's your nature. God will strengthen the hearts of the afflicted, meaning that he will give them courage in the evil hour. And like the parable that Jesus told, the judge will rouse himself and work justice for the oppressed. The psalmist sees the day when the wicked will be able to strike terror no more. See, I'm aware that this psalm might not answer all the questions that we might have. I mean, why does God allow the wicked to have their day? Why do the righteous suffer so long? However, even though those questions are not answered here, we are told that even in the present day, the power of the wicked will end. The wicked are in trouble. The righteous will be delighted. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you this. Why do you think we don't talk more about the reality that there are wicked people out there? Yeah, I I think one of the reasons for that is we've been told to forgive our enemies, which is Christ's teaching in our lives. So we are to do good to those who uh, persecute us. Uh, And so with that mindset, sometimes people take it, well, maybe we shouldn't call someone wicked. And uh, clearly, you know, this title should not be used wildly or in anger, but we should be able to identify what wickedness looks like. We should recognize that we need to steel ourselves against it. We should recognize that the enemy of our soul, Satan himself, raises up disciples. All of this helps to strengthen our faith. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Momentum is picking up as friends from across the country sign up for the 2022 Israel Experience. Join us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, David walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace. Sail the Sea of Galilee and join in communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last Israel experience said, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful. The trip of a lifetime. 
Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, numbers are limited. So register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.